If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and Mr. Taylor and I are recording this on Tuesday, July 2nd, 2019, and Drew and I have a very busy schedule of blowing our fingers off with illegal fireworks. Speaking of things that haven't actually exploded, well, at least at the box office, Toy Story 4, the advertising campaign that at this point really should have been dialed down. Yeah, I don't know. I just I I was talking with somebody else about this earlier today too. Is that I just keep seeing commercials for this thing in a way that I can't remember the last time I've seen commercials for a movie mm-hmm. that's been out like this. And I don't know if that's being informed by some other part of the company, like they're not moving enough toys. I mean, mm-hmm. this is all pure purely speculation mm-hmm. on my part. But it doesn't seem like it caught on like they thought it was going to. And, you know, we saw earlier box office numbers that this year's cumulative box office is down 10% from last year, which was kind of a lousy number to begin with. So, yeah, it's a really interesting time for box office. And did you actually end up seeing Toy Story 4? I'm at home. I'm a nurse, Drew. We're looking at actually getting out of the house and doing things soon. So I'm I'm looking forward. Put that on the top of your list. I will. I will. And speaking of the, the top of the list, it is worth noting here that if you look at the box office chart for 2019. I know everyone's talking about the box office being off by 10%, but of the top five slots for 2019, Disney has four of these slots. The Avengers Endgame, Captain Marvel, Aladdin, and Toy Story 4. Domestically, Toy Story is sitting now at 238 million. Overseas, it's 262. At this pace, though, it's not going to be a a billion-dollar earner. I don't think if you and I were having this conversation even two weeks ago, that would have even remotely been a possibility. I mean, it's Toy Story 4. Of course everybody on the planet's going to go. Right. And it's a great movie. And what's interesting, too, is that that Disney's kind of had a reversal on on Aladdin, Mm -hmm. which people kind of poo-pooed and there was all this negative press about. Mm -hmm. And then you saw that it's made, it's eclipsed the 800 million international mark and looks like it's going to make 900. Like that is crazy to me. The other thing that kind of startled me is that here's Will Smith out there talking about, this is his career best, thanking the fans. And it's like the high 800s is as well as he's done or... Yeah, I mean, I thought that surely Independence Day or one of the Men in Blacks would have made it, but no, it's Aladdin. I mean, that that to me is really stunning. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you see Aladdin, Jim? <laughs> you keep okay, we will, we will we'll circle back on that one. The local drive-in right now is actually showing Toy Story 4 and Aladdin as a double feature. And I thought, oh, that's awesome. Let's do the 1960s family movie experience. We'll drive, we'll get a, 
big tub of popcorn and will sit there through a dirty windshield covered with bugs and watch these two movies. And uh, not exactly enthusiastic for the idea. Well, I've never been to a drive-in, so I would have taken you up on that offer at Jim. So. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll have to talk with Katie about this. Okay. okay. All right. Uh, speaking of Will Smith, I guess we should also mention that the Spies in Disguise new trailer just dropped. And we had the teaser back in November of last year. And so what did you think? Uh, it was an improvement. I mean, we get a little bit of a more of a glimpse of what this world is going to be. I was wondering what you thought about Tom Holland starring as a nebbish nerd in two animated movies, both now being released by Disney within three months of each other with Spies in the Skies and also Onward, Pixar's Onward coming out in March. Kind of an awkward position for the studio to be in. Yeah, I know, I know. And if all had gone according to plan, this film would have been out originally back in January of this year. And release date slid to April. And from when the first teaser came out in November of last year, they, they pushed the release date yet again. Now it was initially May 7th and now drops on on Christmas Day, though that doesn't necessarily mean a bad film. In fact, I think it's no. very very interesting that Disney, just in the past couple of weeks, brought in Mark Ronson to overhaul the music. And that potentially means a hit song, you know, a good strong score. This feature from Blue Sky is actually based on a short that weirdly dovetails into your other podcast, Light the Fuse. Yes. But it's Pigeon Impossible. Hey, have you actually seen this thing? Or? Yeah, I have. It's got some startlingly bad animation, mm-hmm. but it seems like a, you know, it's a good jumping off point for Spies in Disguise, I think. But again, you have to grade on a curve because this was actually produced back in 2009. The backgrounds for this thing are immaculate. I mean, it's one of these things where it's like they did such a great job on, you know, the anime. And the pigeon's not bad either. You know, not very stylized, but a pigeon. But yeah, the human figures are a bit shaky. And let's see. what. You had a a great anniversary that you wanted to talk about for this week, right? I'm I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm having a brain fart. What are we talking about? Well, on this day Mm -hmm. in 1986, Great Mouse Detective came out. Oh, God, yes, that's right. That's right. If you're like me, you date the start of the second golden age of Disney animation from the release of The Great Mouse Detective. Now, mind you, the studio, they prefer to go with Little Mermaid, which released the theaters in November of 1989. And, you know, you did that that great interview with Rob Marshall back for Mary Poppins Returns, where he talked a little bit about the live-action version of The Little Mermaid that they're prepping. And we've just now begun getting some casting news. Yeah. So we had Aquafina is supposedly coming on board as Scuttle, which I was trying to remember, haven't they done that recently, taken a male role in a project and, and turned it to be a female? On a Disney uh, live action thing? Yeah. I know they've done that recently. That it was just sort of like, oh, they're hitting that button again. On the other hand, we had Jacob Tremley from Room. Uh, they're bringing him in for Flounder. But the thing that seems to be roiling the internet at this point is the news that they've put an offer into Melissa McCarthy to try to bring her in to play Ursula. Drew, I've been a fan of Melissa McCarthy's work since she played Suki on the Gilmore Girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
But what's your what's your take on her as Ursula? I think it's a great. I mean, it's not particularly inventive casting, mm. but I think she's great, and she lives near me in, in Toluca Lake, so I see her all the time. So Do you, you really? Know, ne- oh. Yeah. Next time oh. I run into her, I'll say, "Oh, congratulations!" Very cool. Um, okay. Yeah. There's been some controversy about this casting. I mean, mm. you saw Lizzo's video, right, where she was singing Poor Unfortunate Souls. I did, I did. And in fact, the LGBT community is sort of like, oh, come on. If you're going to do Ursula, she's got to be a drag queen. And, you know, that's not necessarily off the mark. Well, she was based on Divine, obviously. There we go. And, you know, the, one of the great drag queens of the age. And when Disney Theatrical was prepping... Little Mermaid for the stage, the actor they tried to land for Ursula initially was Harvey Firestein. Which, you know, I mean, if you you know remember his work and you know, both performing and writing Torchstone Trilogy, I mean this is a guy who knew that world very well. But the interesting thing is that when Disney went to Harvey with the offer, he was just coming off of having done hairspray on Broadway. And it was just sort of like, guys, you know, for two and a half years now, you know, what with the tryout in Seattle and then being on Broadway, I've been in drag. I don't want to follow a drag show with a drag show. And so he politely turned it down, but left the door open for further collaboration with Disney. In fact, did he redo the book for Newsies uh, for the film? Yeah. Which I saw on Broadway and was terrific. I know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Google Timeless to Me and Nathan Lane, and you'll get to hear a demo recording for the score of Hairspray back when uh, they were trying to get investors involved. And very early on, Nathan Lane was supposed to play Edna Turnblatt in Hairspray. But kind of the same situation that when they finally got Hairspray up out of the ground, Nathan was just coming off of a run on Broadway and the producers. And it's like, A... I don't want to dress in drag for eight shows a week. And B, this actually looks like it's going to be a hit musical, which means I'll have to spend another two years on Broadway. And thank you, no. <laughs> but anyway, talk to me about this Gremlin Secret of the Mogway thing. Yeah. So this is a Warner Media project mm-hmm. uh, that is intended for their streaming service, apparently. Mm-hmm. And it's set in the 20s and will focus on the guy who had Gizmo in the first movie and Mm -hmm. his kind of adventures. It's the story of how Sam Wing and the Mogwai called Gizmo Mm -hmm. met. Hmm. They'll take a dangerous journey through the Chinese countryside, joined by a street thief named L. Along the way, they'll encounter and battle monsters and spirits, all while a power-hungry industrialist and his army of evil, evil gremlins are in pursuit. Sounds good to me. I okay. Mean, okay. I will wait to see how it looks. I think mm-hmm. is the big, big thing because we have not gotten any images yet. Duly noted. Are you feeling optimistic about this? As a longtime Joe Dante fan, the original Gremlins is this really subversive movie, and that's my only concern. Is so far the way this is described is fairly traditional. It's a fairly, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of traditional adventure show. And if you talk with anybody at Warner's, there still is a belief that the second Gremlins film, because it was so subversive and did things like talking to the audience. In fact, do you remember at one point there was supposed to be a moment in the film where 
you were supposed to look up back at the projection booth and you were supposed to actually see little cardboard gremlins supposedly in the projection booth destroying the movie? Or? Oh, I had never heard that. I mean, I remember that sequence. Gremlins yeah. 2 is one of my favorite movies. And I and I loved how they changed that scene for the videotape. Do you remember mm. that? The VHS oh. had a different scene. No, no, I forget that. Yeah, yeah. I think it was John Wayne in the theater. Or mm. it was Hulk Hogan in the theater and John right. Wayne on the mm. videotape or something. Yeah, so it was, it was different. But no, I had no idea that they were supposed to actually show yeah. cardboard gremlins in the theater. I was running theaters during the, the, you know, when this thing came out, and what they literally sent was these cardboard cutouts of gremlins that had springs on them. And what you were supposed to do at that moment in the movie is the projectionist was supposed to turn on the light in the booth and then basically hit the two cardboard things so they'd bounce back and forth in the window with the projector. And, you know, so as the audience looked back, they would see the shadows of the gremlins up in the booth and it's like wow you know suddenly the movie i'm in the movie and the thing is my friends who worked at these other theaters worked at theaters where the projectionists were all unionized and it was like yeah i'm not doing that you will have to pay me extra and more to the point someone from the union will have to tell me that they're doing that and and the idea died a borning because again the projectionists especially in these giant theaters where they're constantly moving from booth to booth to booth to make sure. I mean, this was back in the days prior to automation. And, you know, it's just sort of, nah, I'm not doing that. That, that. That's extra work. And So did you actually get the cardboard cutouts or was this just talked about? I was working in a much smaller theater in the circuit. It was friends who were working at the bigger chains like AMC or that sort of thing. We actually got these things. And, and that was the other thing. You sometimes have a projection booth that five and six different projectors are sharing, you know, based on the configuration of the theater. And, and the very thing that Dante and his team had dreamed up, that you had to throw on the lights in the booth. You understand that when we do that, we throw on the lights for the entire booth. Right. So every other audience that's in watching a movie at this point, it's suddenly there's light pouring in from the booth. And it's like, no, nah, that's not going to happen. So Well, and... What's so interesting about the Disney connection to Gremlins is that project that Roald Dahl worked on with Yes, Dahl, right? yes. Every so often, because Disney looks at those things and it's like Nightmare Before Christmas situations where it's like, we own this. We own this. We should do something with this. And speaking of which, did, did you actually see that they floated news in like the last week to 10 days about they're kicking the tires of a live action Nightmare Before Christmas? I saw that that news bubbled up, but the original reporting was from like two or three years ago. Okay. So I don't know why that came back again, but that seems weird to me. I agree. I'm, I agree. I'm just, a, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't want this to be one of these situations where Tim Burton feels bad because Dumbo underperformed. And I was like, okay, all right. Well, you know, that idea that I said was terrible. Let's take a look at it. Well, now, on the other hand, ideas that look great. They're casting up for that live-action stage version of Hercules that's being done by the Shakespeare in the Park folks uh, at the Delacorte Theater, and we have to see this stage Well, here's the issue. Here's the issue, is that it's set up like all the other Shakespeare in the Parks. So I would literally have to come out. Mm -hmm. We would have to get there at 6 o'clock in the morning, sit on our ass for... 
12 hours waiting mm-hmm. for this thing to start. Yeah. And it's like, oh, can't they just sell tickets? And I, no, I don't, I'm, I'm hoping this will I am hoping this will be a harbinger of good things. I'm, same thing, same right. thing here. Same thing here. Because when you look at this cast, I mean, James Monroe Englehart, the guy who won the Tony for playing the genie in the Broadway version of Aladdin, playing Philokides. And Roger Bart from the producers, Carmen Ghia, but more to the point, he was the singing voice of the young Hercules. He's going to be playing Hades. It's like, this is dream casting. And Jelani Aladdin, who played Kristoff in the Broadway version of Frozen, he's going to be playing the title role. I mean, come on, we got to figure out there's somebody somewhere who owes us a favor, right? Yeah, please. I mean, if you can if you can get me in without waiting for 12 hours, I will be there. Okay. That's right. my promise to you. Okay. And speaking of things that I hope we get to see, given what Wes Ball has been doing with the mouse guard over like the, the last week to 10 days, are you hearing anything at all about other companies kind of kicking the tires to maybe pick this up after Disney and Fox put it and turn it around or no. And I, and I think that his, his, whatever he's doing online has kind of ensured that that will never happen because really? it just seems like he's sort of burning down his house on the way out. I mean, I'm very glad to see all of this stuff. He's posted, mm-hmm. you know, a walkthrough of the production offices mm-hmm. featuring a lot of concept art and Posted a really amazing kind of rough um, approximation of some of the animation before it was sent to Weta. But I can imagine that people are pretty right now mm. at him. I mean, do we do we want to tell people about what this what this is? It was supposed to be a performance capture based on the New York Times bestselling Eisner Award winning series of comic books. And it was basically the Game of Thrones with mice, right? Or... Yeah. Some of the designs just looked so cool. Did you see those, like, turtles that were walking with oh. little sort of cities on their back and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. Well, again, as good as the design was, you're sort of coming in with Wes and figuring, well, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. Greg Weta made his screenplay for this proposed motion capture film available for reading on Dropbox. And the moment it became available, I sat down and read the thing and. Oh my God, Drew. I don't know if this was the draft that was going to go forward, but this is obviously the, the draft that got the project started, that got people excited. But you read this thing, and it's it's a great motion picture just on paper. I would surrender my $12 or $18 for the IMAX 3D right now to see the movie version of what Gary wrote. From the Disney and Fox side of the fence, this was a $170 million stop-motion project. Evidently, Disney did a deeper dive on the whole Eisner Award-winning New York Times. You know, so exactly when you say New York Times best-selling, how many, how many issues of the graphic novel, you know, copies of the graphic novel did you sell? And then they looked at it and it's like, wow, this is a far smaller fan base than we actually thought. In the end, what are you going to do? The math has to make sense that if you're going to commit, and especially now that we're talking about the merged Disney-Fox mega entertainment corporation, where now it's a question of, all right, if we give a release date to a Fox film, that means that doesn't get, a Disney film doesn't get that primo date. And it's like, now it comes down to you really, really, really believe in this film. Because now we're making some really, really hard choices between 
Disney and Pixar and, and Marvel and Lucasfilm and giving the Fox films the window that they need as well, that two to three week window of just by itself so it can you know soak in and make the most of the box office so what could have been jim what could have been yeah and well speak going from what could have been to what is have you actually been watching amphibia at this point i know we we talked on the last show that you know you and i were going to make an effort and check out yeah this i've seen a little bit bits and pieces partially because i turn on disney channel when i leave the house for the mm-hmm. dog so i've seen um <laughs> She likes to, you know, she likes the colors, so okay. she's a big fan of Disney Channel. But no, I, I mean, the look of this thing is really great. Mm-hmm. I think it's really cool. And I'm just so excited that there's an original concept on Disney Channel instead of, you know, Tangled the Series or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Okay. But yeah, I know that when, when this episode airs, there'll be a new episode on Disney Channel that same day. Yep. But yeah, how are you feeling about Amphibia? I'm a big supporter of anything that Bill Farmer does, and he voices Hop Pop. On this show. Mm-hmm. Gotta love the overall design of the thing. The couple of episodes that I've caught, the writing's a little iffy, but you know, it's also one of those things where it's like, look, it's the early episodes of series. It's always, you know, and that's always when the show is kind of finding its legs. And typically it's five to seven episodes in before they really sort of hit their stride. Yeah. The central character, the human female that ends up in Amphibia, it's kind of interesting how she gets there. She's actually on a dare. She shoplifts a box out of a store. Uh, she's sort of goaded into it by two of her friends, and it, the box that she or she lifts is the Calamity box, and she accidentally stumbles upon this thing that bridges the two worlds. And again, it's kind of an interesting show, choice on a Disney show to, to you know have a thing put forward by shoplifting. On the other hand, again, you know, how can you not love a show? That has a voice cast that includes Stephen Root as Mayor Toadstool or Jack McBrayer as Toady. I mean, literally, the mayor's assistant is called Toady. Uh, the cast is really funny. Although, now, hearing Jack McBrayer just makes me want more Wander Over Yonder. Yeah, I know, I know. But, you know, we live in a Disney Plus world now, Drew. You know, never say never. And remember, we got a fourth season of Samurai Jack, so... That's true. That's true. Maybe. Maybe. Never give up. Yeah. On the other hand, from the Disney Channel side of the fence, the channel clearly believes strongly in the show. It was already renewed for a second season on May 17th, a full month ahead of the, you know, the show's debut on June 17th. So check it out, folks. Circle back on it. it it's it definitely, like as Drew said, just today, uh, there's a brand new episode that airs at 10 a.m. There's also a brand new episode that airs tomorrow at 10 a.m. So check that out. And we need to take a quick commercial break here, folks. But when we get back, Drew and I are going to talk about where the wild things are and the Disney version of the Brave Little Toaster. As we mentioned, Drew, this show goes live on June 9th. And on this day... This is uh, Michael J. Fox's birthday. He was born in 1961. This is Johnny Depp's birthday. Uh, He was born in 1963. And Mae Whitman, uh, the talented young lady who voices Tinkerbell these days for Disney, was born in 1988. For you theme park fans out there, back on June 9th, 1984, this was the day that Laser Phonic Fantasy debuted out on Epcot's World Showcase Lagoon. 
that was the precursor of Illuminations. And, and let's remember, folks, that Illuminations, Reflection of Earth, the very last one of those, is going to be presented on September 30th of this year. And then the very next day, on October 1st, we get Epcot Forever. And you have to wonder, Drew, if there's going to be any nod to Laserphonic Fantasy as part of that show. I hope so. You know I'm a big fan of old Epcot. It's my my happy place. So (laughs) I'm very excited about the Epcot Forever fireworks, even if I can't get down down to see it. But I, I think I will be able to. Okay, cool. Also, something else worth noting, folks, on June 9th, 1986, the original Cars was released to theaters. And, of course, directed by John Lasseter, this was the fourth of the five films he would direct during his stint at Pixar. If things had gone another way, by this time in his career, John would have directed a sixth film. This one for Disney, and it was going to be The Brave Little Toaster. Now, Drew, you've seen the test that's available online for where the wild things are. Yeah, it's really cool. The whole concept behind the, his approach was it was going to be CG backgrounds and CG camera moves, but traditionally animated characters. Which yeah. is, it's a great concept, and you can tell in the in the test that this idea definitely had legs, but he did not get to do it, sadly. This is kind of the way Disney operated back in the day, that you'd be working on, on something, and it would get folks excited at the studio, and even before you finished the project, Disney was already looking for follow-up. The pattern actually held with the black hole. I mean, you know, it's the summer of 79, we're still six months out from Black Hole being released to theaters. But Ron Miller is so convinced that he has a hit on his hands that he turns to the staff and says, we need a science fiction film to follow up the Black Hole. We, we need to be ready in much the same way that George Lucas followed Star Wars with The Empire Strikes Back. What do we got? And they actually come up with an idea. It's Basically, it's Star Wars meets Snow White. Snow Star... White Star, Star White. I mean, it had a couple of different names at been time when you talked to, to Ron. And this was kind of the same thing with Where the Wild Things Are. I think, you know, they showed it around the studio, and I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. And, and But this is just a featurette, you know, right? And it's like, well, yeah, well, what are we going to do to follow this? And so Tom Wallheit, who's the head of creative development at the studio at this point, He's like, okay, well, let's look for a follow-up project. And it turns out in 1982, there was a short story written by Thomas Dish called The Brave Little Toaster. And it's about these five heroic household appliances that journey from a remote cottage to the city in search of their master. And Tom looks at the thing and it's like, oh, this is great. So the plan is that where the wild things are, is going to take this marriage of traditional, uh, you know, or, well, again, this was still when they, you know, prior to Lasseter coming through the door, so it was traditional animation versus CG. You know, it was only in 2006 that, what, the rule came down that it's no, it's no longer traditional animation, it's hand-drawn animation. Right. And you yes. weren't allowed to say CG anymore, it was computer animation. So it was computer animation and hand-drawn animation. So they buy the film rights. And this is the plan, that they're going to make the Where the Wild Things Are featurette, and then they're going to do pivot right into Brave Little Toaster. In fact, this this is the thing that just astounds me, Drew. They were so sure that this was going to happen, that it was merely a formality that Ron Miller was going to you know, green light this thing. So Will Height, who prior to becoming the head of creative 
development at Disney was actually the head of a publicity of the studio. He reaches out to a, a friend of his, David Hutchinson, who's working for Starlog magazine. And he brings him in and does this feature-length interview with John Lasseter in his office at Disney Animation. And it's all about Brave Little Toaster, this, this movie they were about to make. You can actually find the full interview online. It's a December 83 issue of Starlog magazine, and I pulled a couple of quotes out of it just because this is how far along they were with the animated feature at this point. John lays out his plans for Brave Little Toaster, that we're going to caricature the Toaster's world slightly so it has a warm, cartoony look. All the technicians involved in developing computer animation are trying to copy the real world. That's great, but as an artist, I like to manipulate and stylize it. Look at the way uh, Grant Wood reduced everything to geometric shape or, for example, Ivan Earl's wonderful square trees and uh, Disney's Sleeping Beauty. And he goes on to talk about what does a talking to us look like? We can indicate an approach, but the real character work doesn't begin until the animator gets involved. And we just don't want to tack on eyes to the side of a toaster. And some of the characters for this film don't even have faces at all. They, they We have them uh, faces growing out of knobs or indentations in the design. We're, we're trying to make it look so it's somewhat logical. And Drew, given all of the years you've been interviewing uh, people up at Pixar, this has to sound very familiar. Yeah. Well, I mean, it even sounds familiar to what he did with Luxo Jr. Of, of, you know. That's it, exactly. When you think about his student films at CalArts, where, what, what, the one that took the student Oscar about the, the faceless lamp. Everyone who thinks about John Lasseter's version of Brave Little Toaster thinks that it was going to be the first fully CG film, and that just was not the case. Again, the wireframe computer animation that was then overlaid with traditional animation to give this film where the wild things are test such a distinct look this was the same thing they were going to do with brave little toaster in fact again a couple of additional quotes here the characters are accurately positioned in the 3d environment by the computer which also knows where the light sources are and how bright they are the toaster for example is going to be chrome it's going to be hand animated we'll just indicate its highlights and shadings and the cheat was going to be that the toaster in the movie wouldn't always be totally reflecting things because he has a face and, and that would be confusing. So the way they were going to get around this is there were going to be a few key scenes at the start of uh, Brave Little Toaster where there'd be a chrome mirror reflection. And then the idea was that going forward, you just hint at it uh, for the rest of the film. And and the audience, it having, having been established, the audience would just dis- always know that there'd been a chrome mirror reflection, though they'd, they're not seeing it again. John talks about in live action, if this were the case, you'd see a cameraman's reflection. And In fact, we're thinking of animating that for one scene, showing a camera crew in the toaster's reflection as it travels by. And so we see the, the birth of the Pixar Easter egg right. there. So... This interview is published in the December 1983 issue of Starlog magazine. And by this point, John Lasseter had been fired two months earlier by the Disney company. Oddly enough, again, I know you love your old Epcot, but to be honest, one of the reasons that John lost his job was the old Epcot. This is 83, and Disney is just getting its first attendance numbers for Epcot for its first full year of operation, and it's not meeting projections. Epcot went 
ridiculously over budget. I mean, when, when the yeah. project was first announced in 1978, it was only supposed to cost $400 million. Disney, to this day, will will admit that it went a little over budget. It was $1.2 billion, but Saul Steinberg, when he was green-mailing the company just a, a few months later in, in the late spring, early summer of 84, he made a point of waving documents around that he had gotten from sympathetic insiders who wanted things to change at Disney. And they're like, no, this whole Epcot cost $1.2 billion. That's a lie. This, this shows that the actual construction cost was actually closer to $1.9 billion. <laughs> so you're at this point in Disney company history where they are suddenly very, very fiscally concerned that suddenly the cost of everything is a is a big deal and 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 here comes john lassiter through the door with tom walheit here's our test for where the wild things are and here's our boards and our projections for brave little toaster where the wild things are as a feature it was supposed to cost six million right Mm-hmm. And the math, if I remember correctly, this was the 70 minute long version of Brave Little Toaster. And they were saying that was going to cost $18 million to make. And Tom Wilhite had been put in this job as head of creative development at Walt Disney Studios because Ron Miller was tired of making safe movies like The Cat from Outer Space and things like that. And so they walked in assuming that Ron was immediately going to sign off on this thing, again, on both of these projects, and they would just have to then go down the hall and get started. And Ron was facing this brand new financial reality and, and the threat of what would happen. It was already rumbling on Wall Streets about, you know, Disney needed to change, you know, in management. And Ron, given the financial situation the company was facing, couldn't green light a $24 million worth of, of animation. Yeah, I mean, I'd heard that they'd said, well, is this cheaper? And they'd say, no. And they'd say, well, is it faster? And they'd say, oh, no. Mm -hmm. Then it was like, well, what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. You want to talk fast. The old guard at Disney had been so threatened by what Lasseter and Tom Wilhite were trying to do here. that Picture this. It's a half hour after he's met with Ron Miller. And... Lasseter gets a call from Ed Hansen, who's the, the, the manager of animation at Disney Studios, and it's like, hey, John, can you come down to my office? And it's like, okay. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, he's still sort of, you know, trying to figure out what happens next. My project just got shut down. Ed, you know, asks John to sit down and goes, hey, your project, well, here's the quote, supposedly. Well, John, your project is now complete, so your employment at Disney Studios is, is now terminated. And Lasseter's like, I couldn't believe it. I, I had just been fired. The way John Lasseter liked to tell this story was, you know, he'd been fired by Disney. And for like a week, two weeks, he doesn't tell his wife. He just gets up, dresses, and goes out. And he's trying to figure out what to do next. But he has a set of credentials for a a computer animation conference that's being held at the Queen Mary. And he goes there, and he runs into Ed Catmull. Ed asks about where the wild things are and Brave Little Toaster. And John can't bring himself to say that he's been fired by Disney. So he says those projects have been shelved, and and Catmelt supposedly you know immediately realizes John is is available and invites him to come up to Lucasfilm, and this is where we get Andre and Wally B and the start of Pixar, and see that's the kind of cleaned up you know version. And folks, we've all fudged our resumes to cover an interesting part of our employment. John 
when he took the job at Lucasfilm, flat out told the folks there, it's like, look, I can only do this for a short time because Tom Wilhite has reached out to me. And he's furious about the way this whole Brave Little Toaster and where the Wild Thing situation, the way it was handled. So he's resigning from Disney. And as part of his separation packet, he's getting the film rights to the Brave Little Toaster. And what he wants me to do is to hang loose that, you know, he's going to go out after he leaves Disney, he's going to line up the financing. Not as unlikely as you might think, because remember, Don Bluth had left Disney in 79 and found the financing almost immediately to go out and do The Secret of Nim. So that's that's what Woolhite was planning on doing here. And so it's like, you know, just hang tight. And when I get the financing lined up, you and I will go off and make the Brave Little Toaster together. You finally get to make the movie you wanted to make at Disney. When John did the Where the Wild Things Are test, it was a collaboration. He was handling the CG, but who was handling the hand-drawn? I don't know. I'd never heard this. Glenn Keane. Oh. When you look at that test and that wonderful staging and all that, that's that's pure Glenn Keane. You know, the very, very early in his career. But Glenn was so mad about what had happened as well because he was envisioning pretty much the same thing, that I'll learn my craft with this computer animation stuff on where the wild things are, and then we'll get to do some really killer stuff with the Brave Little Toaster. And what he does is when they fire Lassiter, he resigns from Disney in protest. But mind you, he agrees to, he'll work as a freelancer for the company, but he just, he can't in good conscience stay on as a full-time employee. And so if you want to see some amazing Glenn Keane animation that's not in a Disney film, go track down the Chipmunk movie from 1987. There's two musical numbers in that that Glenn basically did. One is... The Boys and Girls of Rock and Roll, and then I, I want to say it's Get Lucky or Lucky Break, but it's it's these these two scenes that Glenn did for the Samuel Goldwyn Company for this animated feature. By 1986, Glenn was back at Disney Studios because, again, it was one thing to, to resign in anger, but it's quite another thing when, you know, you've got a young family and you're starting out in... You know, it's nice to have health insurance. It's nice to have a steady paycheck. And so Glenn returned in 86 to take on working on Fagan and uh, Sykes and Georgina in Oliver and Company. And pretty much for much the same reason, John had stuck with Tom Wilhite for a large part of the run, walking around to financial people, trying to get backing for Hyperion Studios, and then in turn the money to to make uh, the Brave Little Toaster. But at the same time, John was basically newly married at the same period. He and, and Nancy were having the first of their four boys. And it just, in the end, it's like, I can't keep doing this forever, Tom. I can't keep going to in front of would-be you know financial people and doing the dog and pony show. And so he eventually walks away and reaches out to Ed Catmull again, and they happily bring him back up to Lucasfilm. And on the back of Wally B and all the shorts they, they did there, you know, we get Pixar that we know today. Will Hyde, on the, the other hand, eventually does line up financing for uh, the Brave Little Toaster. It's not the $18 million at the version that they're going to get at Disney. It's only 2.5, but it's uh, Jerry Reese who 
actually was in the very first uh, character animation program class, along with John Lasseter and Brad Bird and John Musker and, you know, Henry Selleck and a bunch. Jerry actually made a 90-minute long movie where John was going to make a 70-minute long film. So it just fascinates me about what got added. But here's, here's the final Brave Little Toaster story that says a lot about where animation was and where it's come to now. So Brave Little Toaster finally gets released theatrically in 87. But prior to that, uh, in, you know, when the film was finished and they were looking for distribution, Jerry took the film to Sundance. Now, mind you, this is Sundance in its first 10 years, and it's not, mm-hmm. you know, the industry powerhouse that it is today. But it was still a, a very significant place to take a movie. They showed it in competition. And this is the story that Jerry tells. That Okay, so we were using Sundance to get distribution. And this was one Sundance was just getting up and running. And we got a really positive reaction to our screening. And we were hoping we'd get the spotlight. We thought of Sundance Celebrators, it would help us get distribution. I met some of the judges. And three of them told me at different times that we thought you had the best film here this year. But to say that an animated film won the top prize... We don't think people would take the festival seriously. But again, the judges went on to say, but secretly, you had the best movie here. Reese goes on to say, it was so weird to watch someone else win the award with them winking at us. Back then, animation was still seen as the bastard stepchild of the industry, and we had hoped to elevate it to a legitimate storytelling medium. And of course, now it's it's completely different. And is it completely different, Drew? I don't think so. I think it's still sort of relegated to the the margins, but Mm -hmm. that's just me. Mm, Well, there is so much Hyperion animation, so many great stories associated with this, and we really, at some point in the future, Drew, have to circle back on this, if only to talk about their two other animated features, which, oddly enough, with Sundance obsessed with, you know, you can't have a kid's film winning an adult award, and Here was Hyperion actually trying to make uh, two animated films for adults, uh, 1991's Rover Dangerfield and then 1992's BB's Kids. And in both cases... Yeah, well, no, again, you actually saw BB's Kids in the theater, didn't you? Oh, yeah, I went... I mean, I don't know how old I was, but I was... had no business seeing Baby's Kids, but I was still fascinated with animation. Oh, then. yeah, yeah. And that's, again, one of the reasons we have to circle back to that one is there were so many Disney pros who worked on that film. And when you think about the Robin Harris piece of stand-up that it was based on, where he actually talks about he's taking kids to Disneyland. and Right. So, all right, we'll, we'll get to we'll, that. We'll, cir- we'll circle back for sure. We'll circle back on that. Now, we, we talked about Pigeon Impossible, which somehow think you're not going to cover on Light the Fuse, but... We are, but maybe we will, now that you say it. But, oh. um, yes, please listen to Light the Fuse. I don't really know what episode is coming up, but we I think we did a, a preview of our commentary track. We did a, a commentary of the entire first movie, which is for Patreon subscribers, but we, we gave you a little taste of that, so you can sync up your Mission Impossible Blu-ray or digital copy and, and watch with us, Ooh. which is kind of fun. Okay. Wow. No, I'd love to hear all those De Palma stories. Okay, cool. No, I'll do that. My side of the fence, we've, of course, got a Disney dish with Luntesto. We've got Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. We've got, of course, the wonderful podcast, Looking at Lucasfilm with Dan Z, and... 
We even have I Want That. And let's not forget about Marvelous Disney, the wonderful podcast with Aaron Adams. Please head over to iTunes and rate and recommend our show. Funny head, you really, really like what we do here? Head over to Bandcamp and subscribe. I guess we'll call this a show then, Drew. Alrighty. Alright, take care, folks. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.